Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing patient safety. Patient Safety Week occurs annually in March. Organizations such as the National Academy of Medicine, previously the Institute of Medicine, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and hospitals and clinicians are focused on the health and safety of patients. So why designate a period for patient safety? It's to put a spotlight on this issue sometimes taken for granted. That is the well-being of all patients interacting with the healthcare system. Today, you'll have the opportunity to listen to a fascinating conversation with our expert, Michael Weinstock, a remarkably accomplished clinician scientist and adjunct professor for emergency medicine. He'll be interviewed by one of our regular guest hosts, Heather Owen. Heather is a practicing emergency physician and both Team Health's chief clinical officer for emergency medicine and its executive director of the patient safety organization. In other words, she's also a patient safety expert. Let's join the conversation now. Good afternoon. This is Heather Owen, Chief Clinical Officer of Emergency Medicine. And in honor of Patient Safety Awareness Week, we are here with Dr. Michael Weinstock. We are so honored to have him here with us today. And I'll start with a brief introduction and tell you um, all the amazing things that we're gonna get to hear about today for sure. So. Um, Dr. Weinstock, first, thank you very much for your time today. We are honored to have you here. Um, and when I was when I was reading a little bit about you, I realized you come from a, a long line of physicians, actually. Your father is an ophthalmologist. Your grandfathers were both general surgeon. Your great-grandfather was a barber surgeon in Russia. I had to look that up. That is not the guy you want to be referred to. Yeah, um, exactly, right. <laughs> not, not on the list of things to do. Um, but... but Dr. Weinstock obtained his bachelor's degree with a major in economics from Northwestern University and then went on to get his medical degree from Ohio State University College of Medicine. In 1995, he completed his residency at Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He is an emergency medicine attending physician and also the director of research at CME at Adena Medical Center. He's a professor of emergency medicine, adjunct in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Wexner Medical Center in the Ohio State University. He is the executive editor of UC Max and the risk management section editor of Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives. That's EMRAP, and I know many of you um, listen to that regularly. He's also the Cork Compendium section editor of ED Administration and Practice and chapter author of Low Risk Chest Pain and a Tentanale app that's soon to be released for low risk chest pain also. He's the medical director in the Ohio Dominican University PA Studies Program. He's lectured nationally on issues such as risk management and patient safety and has published multiple papers in peer-reviewed journals. In 2006, he authored Bounce Facts, Emergency Department Cases, ED Returns, with a 10-year anniversary that was updated in 2018. In, 20, in 2011, he did Bounce Facts, Medical and Legal, which was published with reviews in Annals of Emergency Medicine, Archives of Emergency Medicine, and JAMA as well. And then Bounce Facts Pediatrics was published in 2015. Bounce Facts Critical Care came in 2021. Um, the accolades just continue. 
when I, when I, when I researched more, I found that early in his career while working as a full-time emergency physician, Dr. Weinstock spent 12 years as a clinical assistant professor in the infectious disease clinic at the Ohio State University, taking care of patients with HIV and AIDS and working on clinical trials as a sub-investigator, which is absolutely um, amazing. He's practiced medicine on both a local and global scale, including volunteer medical work in Papua New Guinea, Nepal, and West Indies. Dr. Weinstock is married to Beth, a family physician, and they have four children, Olivia, Eli, Theo, and Annie. And in addition to medicine, not that I can imagine how he has any other time, but he does have lots of passions, such as skiing, backpacking, traveling, and writing. He's a singer-songwriter, plays the guitar and the harmonica, and he's the leader of the big rock and blues band. And while I... I think it would be so much more fun to, to listen to some of your songs and to dive into to music. We'll chat. We'll chat about medicine today. We'll save the music for next time. But again, thank you so much. It is our honor to have you with us today. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to do this, Heather. And um, that was quite a long intro, a, a bit of a humble guy on, on some of that. But um, obviously, I have a lot of passion for medicine and teaching and research. And yeah, those things that I've done sort of demonstrate some of those sort of passions that I have. Yeah, absolutely. It shows through, but um, no, introduction is absolutely amazing. You have accomplished so much and it, and it certainly doesn't do justice. There's more, there's more that I could cram in there. Um, but I do thank you for your commitment to patient safety and physician education. And that is really what we want to focus on today. So as we enter patient safety awareness month, we or week, we really want um, to take some time to talk about that and the work that you've done and how you have worked to propagate um, patient safety and physician education. So with with all those things, what um what's your what's your greatest passion? And how did you how did you kind of pivot from frontline clinician to um, all the work around patient safety and physician education? Yeah, you know, it's funny because oftentimes, you know, some of these lectures I'll I'll talk to the residents and say something like, you know, good job for getting into the EM residency, good job for finishing it. But the way you're really successful is completing a career in emergency medicine, whether that's 25, 30, 35, 40 years, whatever it might happen to be. And we all have to figure out how we can complete that career. And to me, in addition to the practice of bedside medicine, which you know I really enjoy, I worked shift last night, I finished at 9 p.m. and had some interesting cases and, and enjoyed the people that I worked with, enjoyed caring for those patients. But for me, the thing that really keeps my passion is education, not only just you know teaching about different conditions and all, but really the practice of emergency medicine in the sense that you know we need to always balance the risk of missing serious disease, right, from the risk of overtesting and false positives and potential patient harm that can come as a result of that. So to me, it feels like that running the room, deciding when we decided to order a test, as well as you know our bedside care of medicine, those are all things that you might have a lot of good medical knowledge when you finish your residency, but really it takes years. And when you speak with people who are national leaders, it's really the context that you put into your practice of medicine that you gained from experience as well as your training, as well as of course, understanding the research. Absolutely. And what a phenomenal message for residents to hear from you as they're completing their residency and so young. That's kind of the it's kind of the magic sauce that many of us 
fumble around and try to find along the way. So for you to impart that um, upon them when they're when they're early in their career is phenomenal. And I, I hope that they'll heed that advice because I, I do think um, I do think that that makes a significant impact in our longevity and our job satisfaction for sure. So tell me how you really kind of got started. So what kind of came first? What really kind of exploded all this work that you've done? Well, the, the really funny story about how this all started with the, the bounce back books and the M&M conferences, et cetera, is that I found myself at the beginning of the, the 2000s really most interested in these cases, uh, you know, serving on peer review also of patients who got sent home and then came back and, you know, what we term as a bounce back case. And there's been some different studies that have looked at those and, you know, bounce back deaths, initial study by Michael Kiefer, then David Sklar, and there's some other ones too. But when I first thought about having and starting an M&M conference in my community hospital where I worked at Columbus, Ohio, which was almost 80,000 visits a year. So a very busy community hospital, but we really didn't have that set up. And so I, I found some of these cases and invited our entire group. And it ended up me being two, myself and two of the emergency physicians in my living room one night. And we just sort of talked through these cases. And it turns out the cases that I found most interesting, not only just with that conference, but as we've gone through and the cases I decided to put in my books or the cases that I use on MRAP with the medical legal briefs or UC Max with the different podcasts too, are the cases that you look at and you say, you know, it's not esoteric. It's not something that is obvious, like, oh, don't give 10 times the dose of TPA for a patient, right? And then they bleed to death, right? But it's the cases where we think to ourselves, you know, I might've handled the case in the same way. And only by getting the listener to consider the fact that that might have been their case, might have been the way they handled the patient, might have been their documentation, is the opportunity for learning really there. And so it brings me back to an article, and I just actually did a commentary on MRAP just last month, where I talked about the article by Weirs and Nemeth, where they think to themselves, you know, what is the best way to learn from cases? And they had a really interesting and, and eye-opening statement they made in their article. And they said, you know, it's not from thinking about how we phrased and how we viewed a patient, their presenting complaint and what we did in the emergency department. It's not that type of patient where we learn the most. The times that we learn the most are when we consider, well, why did the way that they handle things seem so reasonable at the time? And that's been really my overriding philosophy with these cases, to have the listener put themselves in the footsteps and say, yeah, I might've handled the case in the same way. And only by doing that, do we really have the opportunity to significantly improve our care of patients? You know, I, I love how you pivot on that. I um, I can think of dozens and dozens of times when I've been sitting in quality reviews and, and physicians have said the exact same thing. You know, I, I would have done the exact same thing, um, but you're very, very eloquent and you've had a phenomenal way throughout your career in pushing those physicians to think further. It's not enough to say you know what, I probably would have done the same thing. It's it's pushing them to think further about how they could have done different to change the outcome. And if that patient comes in tomorrow, how that care would be different so that we can provide safer, high quality care. Um, I love how you've been able to do that with all um, with all the work that you do. What gives you what, what gives you the greatest joy? 
In the work that you do, what do you find to be the most rewarding? You know, it, it's really funny. You think of, I mean, I, through my life, probably have thought of medicine, sort of that stale fluorescent time that we're in the emergency department and running from room to room and <laughs> hoping for like 30 seconds to take a bathroom break, right? But when I think of some of the other stuff, and you mentioned that I, uh, the, the, you know, singer and guitar player, harmonica player for the big rock and blues band, and you think about music, I mean, in some ways, it seems diametrically opposite to the practice of medicine, right? One is very technical and and sterile. The other is more creative. And when I am coming up with, for example, a lecture or a book or a chapter, and I think to myself, you know, how can I best relate some of these messages that I want to get across? For example, you know, that balance that we talked about a few minutes ago, or I want to get across why it's important that someone considers a certain diagnosis or a phrase that I've said frequently, you know, if it's not in the differential, it won't be in the diagnosis, right? So, you know, when I think about that, that in in the same way is creating something in the same way, writing a song or or writing a play. When you think of a topic and for example, a topic that you can present at a lecture and then you see the response and you see sort of light going off to say, oh, wow, this is a way that we can improve patient care within the context of our practice of emergency medicine. To me, that's the most satisfying thing of everything that I do. It's the creativity, but creativity within this technical landscape that we live in, in emergency medicine. Fantastic. And the analogy to music is its absolutely beautiful with so many musically inclined in medicine. I know that a lot will, um, a lot of our listeners will absolutely relate to that. I am, um, so you're, you're obviously a very accomplished educator. Um, you have an ability to reach and connect with people in a way that not very many people do. So one of the things that I think would be really helpful to our listeners and especially some of our facility medical directors, because they're the ones in our facilities that are responsible for selecting the cases to discuss with their department or with their colleagues. So as you go through cases and as you review, how do you select those cases that are going to have the most educational impact? Well, one thing that's been pretty unique with the work that I've done, especially with the bounce back books, is that I use the actual documentation. So oftentimes you read case studies and there's a lot to be learned from case studies with a lot of different ways that they're presented, right? They could be short, they could be long, they could have a very in-depth you know, explanation of the presenting complaint and final diagnosis, right? But one thing that I think is really important is to recreate the exact documentation, including you know, spelling errors. And maybe we, we shorten stuff to take out a lot of the, the nurse's notes and stuff that's not really relevant. But when we present this as the actual documentation that was done, the reader can really get themselves in the footsteps, not only of the emergency physician who cared for that patient, the emergency cl- clinician who cared for that patient. But in addition, they can think of themselves maybe even at a peer review meeting where they're looking at this documentation, at this chart. And that's unique within medical education to have that. And the other thing that's really pretty cool, and I'll tell you a funny story how I came across it, but with the second book in the series, which is you know, Balance Back's Medical and Legal, and that's one that I'm actually updating now. And then at the end of this year, 2023, I hope to turn that into a free risk management course that I provide for emergency medicine residencies. Well, you know, we actually have in that book, a lot of deposition and trial testimony. And it's amazing, but 
it's almost impossible to find that. So a lot of risk management teaching that gets done, especially when you think about the legal teaching that gets done, it's really just someone parroting, you know, oftentimes, unless they've done a lot of medical legal work, but, you know, parroting something someone else has said. And, and there's, you know, opportunity to do that, right? And I, I do that. I'm sure we all do that in some degree because there's people that respect and know a lot. And so, you know, we can paraphrase what they say, but there's nothing really like sitting in a courtroom or going through a deposition as an expert or, you know, sitting in a peer review meeting, for example, but there's nothing like that to really have you understand what will be called out on later. And the fact is we don't really want to think about that in a defensive way. And I have this phrase that I use very frequently is that we don't want to practice defensive medicine, but we want to evaluate and document in a way that's defensible. So what I, what I first was trying to do is to find some of this testimony, which is almost impossible to find just on the internet or anywhere. And I just had no clue on how to do that. And eventually the lead guitar player in our band, who was a public defender, and he said, Mike, he said, you know, if you go on the internet, there are these appeals decisions and they'll have a sort of summary of the case. It's not the actual documentation. It's not a lot of the trial or deposition testimony, but why don't you just look for some of these and then you can actually call the attorneys. And I started doing that and I found out that these attorneys, both for plaintiff and defense, were like really, really interested in sharing the information they had. And even the ones that were for the plaintiff, when they talked to the patients, their thought was, yeah, I'd like this information to get out. So maybe it wasn't an error. Maybe it went for the defense, but maybe care could have been improved. And so we wanted to give the readers of these bounce back books or the podcast or lectures or whatever, we want to give them an opportunity to see a patient similar to my family member who had an adverse outcome and maybe to think about how we could improve care. So I know that was a, a long, a very long answer to a very short question. But in the end, the way that we have done that with the actual documentation and then oftentimes with deposition or trial testimony to me feels like a way that we've really really served to improve retention of the people who read about these cases so that's really so that's really interesting and i'm so intrigued you know you mentioned that you're going to bring miss risk management course you know to the residencies and you're absolutely right exposing them to deposition and trial testimony is not something they ever really have the opportunity to see. Um, so what an incredible experience for the residents to get that. But oh my goodness, the entire the entire medical community could, could absolutely benefit from that as well. There's so much to be learned from those cases and the way they're evaluated. And I don't know anyone, um, and you could probably speak to this much more, but I don't know anyone who has ever done any medical legal work or even just case reviews, right? I mean, even just, you know, quality reviews, um, and hasn't changed the way they document or something about the way they practice or something about the way they interact um, with their patients. So that's phenomenal. You know, it's very interesting because when you think about some of that work, and I just think about Rick Bucata, you know, one of our, you know, the grandfather's grandparents, I should say, of, of emergency medicine. Yeah. And the times that we've done stuff, for example, you know, in, in podcasts or just even speaking, you present something to him and he always knows the answer. And maybe he can narrow it down to several different potential diagnostic possibilities. But there's never a time when you present something to him and he just has absolutely no idea what's going on with it. I mean, of course, unless it's something so esoteric, of course, right? But when I think about that question that a patient asks, and they might come in with chest pain and say, am I having a heart attack? And that's important to understand. But 
more important, and it's something I know that you and I, and I'm sure all of us listening do all the time too, right? But oftentimes when patients have a specific question, they don't really understand that for us as bedside clinicians, what we're really hearing is the question that their presentation is asking. So just for example, a chest pain, right? They might be wondering if they're having a heart attack, but for us, we should be saying, is it a, you know, ACS, PE or dissection or the other parts of the big six or seven type of considerations for life-threatening causes of chest pain, right? And of course, we need to answer that question. Now, that answer oftentimes can come just based on our bedside testing. And, you know, I remember at Ohio State, they told me in medical school, if you think of PE, test for it. And I always knew that was exactly not exactly right, but I never really knew how to prove it. And of course, now with Jeff Klein's PERC rule, right, we can prove it, right, that we can think of PE and we can use a clinical decision rule such as the PERC rule to, you know, with all reliability, one or 2% to rule that out to the point that we don't need to do any other objective testing for. But it's astounding to me, Heather, when I think about and look through some of these medical legal cases, because I've been an expert witness on almost 80 cases now. And when I look through these cases, I think to myself, a patient comes in with chest pain, their presentation is asking ACSPE or dissection or those other things. And the history of present illness does not in any way, shape or form, even consider PE or dissection, just for example, as possibilities, as based on the history that they're obtaining. And I just feel like, man, we are really not serving patients well if we're not getting that information because that's free information we get from the bedside. And of course, how do we know whether to stop at something like troponin EKG plus minus chest X-ray or proceed to D-dimer or CTA for PE or to go all the way to CTA dissection study if we're considering thoracic aortic dissection? And without that data, how can we do that? And I know this sounds a little melodramatic, but I mean, these patients are our family members and friends and parents and kids and siblings. And, you know, they deserve to have the best care, the care that they are, the trust that they're placing in our hands. So again, I, I don't want anyone to, uh, you know, send me boxes of, of tissues, but with that statement there, but it is sort of true. I mean, they don't really know and we do know. And so for us being vigilant and make sure that we can, making sure that we've considered some of those things on the differential and use that free opportunity when we're at the bedside with our history and physical, that data gathering is just so, so, so important to do. It, it absolutely is. And I, um, I don't, I don't think you need a box of tissues at all. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> I, think, I think that it is. I think that we are entrusted with people's lives every day. And and while it is, it is routine and it is what we do every single day, it is something to be taken seriously. And it is one of the reasons why um, we feel so strongly about patient safety, propagating anything we can to enhance patient safety and taking the time, of course, to, um, to talk about it today. Um, you talk about, um, I mean, you kind of go through a, a perfect example of you know, reviewing a case for chest pain, um, but as you have reviewed so many cases and as you have you know, made so much of this your life's work, what have you learned about the way that we learn? You know, we learn as residents and then we continue to learn or we should continue to learn. So what have you learned about the way that we learn um, so that we can better understand how we can educate our colleagues? Well, this is sort of funny, and maybe I'm giving too much of a window into my soul, but I sort of feel like even now, 28 years into full-time emergency medicine, is that I'm still trying to find ways to improve my efficiency in the ED. Like, even if it's 30 seconds or a minute, you know, per hour, right? Well, that might be one extra patient that you're seeing during the course of your shift. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just something that 
when you first start, right, maybe even taking it back further to a student, you know, you're asking all those old car questions, right? Onset, location, duration, exacerbators, character, I mean, all those things, right? Well, eventually you're thinking again about the question that the presentation is asking. You're asking directed questions to those things. So to me, it feels like this practice of emergency medicine is still that in some ways, right? No matter how good you get, there's opportunity for improvement as well as opportunity for increasing efficiency when you're running the room in the emergency department. Absolutely. And and we all feel that, especially now as things have gotten busier right. and much more complicated for us, um, for us all the way around. Um, of your accomplishments, what are you most proud of? What do you think will have the greatest impact? To me, the bounce back series of books is my greatest accomplishment. Like when I think of, in a, I guess, sad way, right? Like you're in extreme old age. Hopefully, we'll, we'll all have the opportunity to get there, right? And you're um, just th thinking back to in medicine, and this is I'm not talking about like you know family and music skiing that kind of stuff. But as far as in the career of emergency medicine, right? What I'm most proud of is the fact that I've taken these cases, a lot of which had really terrible outcomes. And then use those for the good in the sense that we've popularized those cases. So hopefully it won't be as we said in the preface of the first book, you know, the smart clinician isn't the one that learns from their own mistakes. It's the one that learns from the mistakes of others. And if we can sort of go to this next level and take this medical legal book, I'm expanding the number of cases in there and use that to teach risk management. And I'm not talking about risk management, like some of the courses that I've gone to, and I hesitate to diminish them too much by saying like, okay, well, yep, I get it. Don't doctor your chart. Okay. I get it. You should have a documentation that explains why you didn't think certain things were going on. Look, those things are important without a doubt, but they don't really serve to give the listener true understanding of things in the same way that they would get when they read through a medical legal trial testimony or you know deposition testimony or you know an, an opinion from an expert or even when you think about an analysis by you know one of the national experts in emergency medicine of the documentation and how that really could have been improved very easily to make sure that not we protect ourselves legally but that we give us the greatest opportunity to improve patient safety and avoid misdiagnosis. Absolutely. You said it so eloquently. And I um, I think your, your bounce back series is absolutely one of the greatest accomplishments for sure. It is um, so powerful and so impactful. And uh, we can all pull something out of each of them. Um, so thank you. Thank you for those. And as we are, um, as we're, as we're winding our time down today, I am, um, I again just want to say how fortunate we are to have you here. Um, a legend in emergency medicine, you have dedicated your life to educating us and, um, and to making our patients safer for sure. Any final um, closing remarks or thoughts that you'd like to touch on today before we close? Well, the statement I'd sort of like to leave all of us with, and it's something that people that have heard me before, sorry for the broken record alert on it, but you know, not only with my own practice, but also with teaching, you know, thinking about that concept of moving standard of care to excellence in care, because, you know, it's been said at a trial, there's two losers, one loser and a bigger loser, average time going through the medical legal system be four years, right? So, you know, that's a significant percentage of our careers. And in the end, it's like, 
most of the time, if it goes to trial, which most don't, but if it does, you know, 90%, maybe 85% go for the defense. But in the end, you don't really feel like a winner if you get that trial verdict. However, if you can sort of start off with at least a goal of excellence in care, and that's not only with patient care or procedural competency or documentation or, you know, compassion towards your patients, you know, all those things are are parts of that. And I'd roll all those into one as far as that concept of excellence and care. If you can get to that point, not only does it really improve the care we're giving to our patients, but it gives us a much better chance of doing what I said in the beginning, which is ourselves being successful by completing a career in emergency medicine. That's such a powerful statement. If we all kind of pause and just think about that, moving moving standard of care to excellence in care. If we all just took a few minutes every day to really ponder that, um, what a significant impact we could have in, um, in patient safety. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute delight to um, have the opportunity to get to know you better, to spend some time with you and to share your wisdom um, with our listeners and our colleagues. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. I will say we are so fortunate that we do have some upcoming opportunities to spend a little bit more time and learn from you. Um, we've got a TikTok style um, presentation on documentation. And we've got a webinar in the works, um, maybe around chest pain. And then it sounds like we're going to be doing a mock trial maybe later in the spring. So thank you for your collaborative efforts with Team Health. We appreciate you and um, all that you give to us every day. Thank you very much, Dr. Weinstock, for being with us today. Thanks so much. It's, it's really been an honor. Thanks to Dr. Owen and Weinstock for such an engaged and thoughtful conversation on this critical topic. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond the Clinical Medicine podcast. If you have any questions on this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.